Under the most ideal situation, you and I wouldn't be in the room because there is a slight echo off of our own bodies. It's a drab fall morning, and I'm sitting with Ed Eckert, Bell Labs archivist, in a massive dome-shaped room covered in fiberglass installation. It's called the anechoic chamber, chamber, meaning a room without echo. And it is, I believe, the quietest room in the world. Or is it? This is no longer the quietest room in the world. At one time it was, until 1970, and it was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the quietest place in the world because of its soundproofing and because once you're inside, it has no echo to reflect sound. So nothing in, nothing out. If I was standing here screaming, no one could hear me. That's correct. And if someone's outside screaming, like if the world's ending, we wouldn't know. That's correct. (laughs) And yet you seem pretty comfortable here. I get used to it. I'd like to sleep here. It would be fun. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This season, we're looking at what happens when scientists and artists collaborate. This is episode two, Kindred Spirits and Sound. Ed conducts a quick demonstration to prove just how quiet it is, blowing up and popping a balloon in the hallway outside the chamber. And then inside. In this episode of Future Human, We're exploring how an echoless room has gone on to speak volumes, impacting everything from how we hear music to how music can heal us. Bell's anechoic chamber was built in 1940, the first of its kind. Over the years, it's been used to test sound and electromagnetic equipment, perform psychoacoustic experiments, even to simulate a concert hall. Research here has led to the establishment of the standard loudness contours used today to determine how we hear sounds at different frequencies. Side note, there's a great Radiolab episode that takes place in Bell's anechoic chamber. It's about sonic hallucinations. We'll link to it in the show notes. Before they built this silent room, though, Bell's technicians were keenly focused on sound creation and signal transmission. The early 20th century saw them create tube amplifiers, creating that hum that drives every musician in stereo buff to salivate, and pair them with another of their inventions, the condenser microphone, enabling cross-country and overseas signal transmission, as well as public address systems. In a groundbreaking collaboration of artists and researchers, American conductor Leopold Stokowski, best known for conducting and appearing in Disney's Fantasia, worked closely with Bell's engineers on a series of firsts. The first ever high-fidelity electrical recordings, the earliest surviving stereo recordings, which you're actually listening to right now, and, in 1933, the first ever transmission of stereo music over telephone lines. Coincidentally, that latter experiment was conducted by Stokowski's assistant, my grandfather, Alexander Smolens. Weird, right? Now, music is everywhere, and the long fantasized about celestial jukebox, that idea that you could play any song, anywhere, anytime, is a commoditized product you pay for monthly. 
Musical innovation is shifting from how you make and transmit sound to what you can do with it. You're listening to Beatty Wolf. She's a London-based singer-songwriter finding her way in the modern-day music industry. But she's also much more. In many ways, a spiritual descendant of Stokowski's. Someone driven by a desire to use music to innovate, even to impact lives. Beatty has been writing and performing since she was eight. Honed in coffee houses and clubs, her folksy sound is rooted in a hunger to recapture something that she feels is lost in today's music. The intention is to try and actually bring back something more traditional, in a sense, um, which is that feeling when, you know, you first opened up a vinyl and it was like a musical book and you could read the liner notes and, you know, look at the artwork and immerse yourself in this world. Um, and it was, you know, it was tangible. It had a story to it. And you actually created, you know, a ceremony around listening to music. With Beatty, the traditional and the high-tech collide constantly. Her recently released album, Montague Square, was conceived at the titular secret studio of Jimi Hendrix, Ringo Starr, and John and Yoko. She recorded the album single, Take Me Home, live in the very room where McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, and Hendrix penned The Wind Cries Mary. For its release, she created a deck of cards, one for each song. Each contains artwork, lyrics, and an embedded near-field communication, or NFC chip, that unlocks the track and additional content on listeners' phones. She then worked with textiles artist Beatwoven to translate Take Me Home into geometric patterns. This woven silk fabric was subsequently cut by storied Savile Row tailor Mr. Fish, who dressed the likes of Hendrix, Jagger, and Bowie back in the day creating the first-of-its-kind musical jacket. This is also equipped with NFC cards that play Take Me Home when tapped by a phone. So, not your average honky-tonk troubadour. Beatty's restless innovation soon caught the attention of Bell Lab's president, Marcus Weldon. It came about very serendipitously. You know, I'd, um, you know, we just sort of finished the musical jacket um, and it had been at, just been at South by. That's South by Southwest, the Austin, Texas-based music film interactive conference that is a granddaddy of such conferences. And we pretty much got back to London and had a call from Marcus and just started telling me about the amazing things that, you know, Bell Labs um, has achieved over the years. Uh, and I was, you know, I was staggered. I knew some, some of them, but not all of them. Um, and he told me about, you know, specifically about the EAT side of the laboratories. EAT refers to Experiments in Art and Technology, a 50-year-old collaboration between artists and Bell Labs engineers that Marcus and Bell are resurrecting this year. Check out the first episode of Future Human for the inside scoop on that. Part of the EAT relaunch was a new project, Bell's Human Digital Orchestra, or HDO for short. The HDO is a live, audiovisual presentation utilizing sensors and giant video screens. Visuals are generated in real time, responding dynamically to the motions of an artist and their audience. It was time for HDO to make its public debut. Marcus just needed an adventurous artist to lead it all. A few weeks and more than a few severed nerves after this call, Wolf, resplendent in her musical jacket, performed live with Bell's HDO at Propeller Fest, a tech conference in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
We were collecting, you know, the data and the sort of motion of the audience, how much they were um, moving and engaging, uh, collecting my movement on stage and my audio and translating that into a live human digital tapestry, which was on the screen behind me. The audience is very much an active part of this of this performance, but also the art within this performance. Um, because actually, you know, going back to, to what I'm really keen to do with all of these innovations is really bring that art side of music back into the fore. Concurrently, Beattie has embarked on a different sort of experimental performance, a more intimate one, inspired by a storied man of science. You know, I, I became deeply fascinated in the work of Oliver Sacks, neurologist and uh, absolute hero, in my opinion, who's contributed so much to the our understanding of music being able to be used for a whole range of ailments, you know, from Parkinson's through to autism, through to Alzheimer's. And I was reading his studies and, and just thinking, actually, you know, in my opinion, there's no greater application of music than this. Um, you know, what better thing than to be able to, you know, bring someone who is so seemingly disconnected back into the room and back into their own, you know, to themselves, really. In recent years, the potential of music as a healing force has gained mainstream cultural currency. The late Dr. Sachs chronicled his work in this area in his 2007 book, Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain. And in 2014, an award-winning documentary called Alive Inside became a viral hit. The movie focuses on social worker Dan Cohen's efforts to use music to reawaken patients struggling with debilitating conditions. It's hard not to tear up as you watch Henry, an inert, mostly unresponsive older man, spring to life when headphones playing his favorite music are put on him. His face lights up, his eyes widen almost comically, and he starts singing along in a honey-smooth voice. To those working in the field of music therapy, the recognition has been a long time in coming. My name is Connie Tomeno, and I'm executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, and also senior vice president of music therapy services at Centralite Health System in New York. A multi-instrumentalist and pioneer in the field of music therapy, Tomeno remembers her eureka moment. I had an opportunity to do a field placement at a nursing home. And this is back in the, you know, mid-70s. And, and people were literally tied to their wheelchairs because they were very agitated. Uh, most of them had feeding tubes because back then they didn't have gastrointestinal tubes. And so you had these very agitated people trying to pull tubes out of their nose. And so the nurses would tie them to their chair. And my assignment was to do something for them with music. And the nurses told me and the doctors told me, you know, just play anything. They don't know what's going on. They don't know who they are. You'll be entertaining us, is what I was told. But yet, I started singing this song that I thought they would know. And the people who were really agitated started calming down. And the people who seemed to be totally catatonic and out of it opened their eyes. And half of them started singing the song. And I'm saying, wait a minute, how does somebody with no brain function, no cognitive function, process music as something familiar that they can not only recognize the melody and wake up, but actually recall the words? These people who've been, you know, relegated to the 
backwards have memory, have function that's still available to them that's not being tapped into. And I was adamant. I was there for uh, almost two years and, and was trying to find people, doctors, scientists, anybody who could tell me why music memory still exists in people who seem to have no memory at all. In 1980, hired as the first music therapist at Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx, she discovered a kindred spirit in another doctor who'd been there since the 60s. And so within my first week here at Beth Abraham, he sent me a little note in the mail, <laughs> into office mail, uh, with an aphorism of Novalis. Every disease is a musical problem, every cure a musical solution. Novalis, welcome Ollie. And I had to find out you know, who Ollie was and, of course, eventually met him. And since then, all that time, he and I started asking questions uh, you know, to ourselves first. And then when we realized that it was possible to actually improve function, not just animate and bring to life in the moment, but actually change function over time, that we needed to study this and, and needed to understand how is it that music works in people who have neurologic diseases. And we tried back in the mid-'80s to get neuroscientists involved, and neuroscience was too new. They, they, in fact, laughed and said, you can't study music in the brain, it's too complex. Tomeno's career is full of amazing and inspiring stories, tales of the neurologically disabled finding new life in familiar soundtracks. A client that I had worked with privately was a young man in his 40s um, who had early onset Parkinson's. He had tons of rock and roll music. I mean, just he had his library was enormous, but it just he just couldn't feel. The, somehow his movements couldn't coordinate to the music, and I said, "Well, just go through your library, and when you find the music that works for you, let me know, and we'll figure out what to do." And he had lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Was afraid to go out because if he got stuck on the middle of 72nd and Broadway, he would freeze and get hit by a cab, you know, so he was reluctant to go out. So one night he calls me up, literally, you know, in the middle of the night, and and, and people with PD tend to be up all, all night long. Um, so calls me up and says, I found the music. And I don't know if you know, it was uh, Baba Olentunji's Drums of Passion, which was huge, you know, but it was all African rhythms and all these complex you know, duple meters and upbeats and, and things like that. And he says it just, he just feels like jumping out of his chair every time he has this music. And so we put it on a, you know, cassette. This is back, you know, in the 80s. So a yeah. cassette player, a Walkman. And um, that, was all that, that was his soundtrack. He pushed the button when he got to the corner and ran across the street and got to the other side and he was fine. Sax and Tomino's work would have an unexpected and deeply personal resonance for Beattie. I didn't think, oh, this is going to become, you know, uh, an avenue of, of, like, my work. But then I found out that my grandmother, who was in San Diego, had been diagnosed with dementia. Um, so I thought, okay, well, whenever I'm going over for regular gigs, I'll take my guitar and, you know, I'll go play to her. And I would arrive and, you know, she'd be very confused, wouldn't know who I was, and after one or two songs, it was like, you know, light bulb back on, 100%, you know, in the room and just recalling much earlier memories about, you know, our time together saying like, oh, you swore in that song because I swore around you as a kid. Um, all these, you know, really, really funny memories that um, that she had of us. And then also 
it actually took her way back to even before um, my time. Was her grandmother responding because she recognized Beattie and had heard her music? She wondered what would happen with a completely uninitiated audience. And then an opportunity came up to perform to a relative uh, living in Portugal with late stages of dementia. And what was meant to be just for him ended up being for the whole ward of 150 or so people who had never heard my music and who actually spoke Portuguese. You know, So apart from this one relative, no one spoke any English. And I thought, well, okay, at best this might create you know, a nice ambience, but it's not going to do anything much more profound than that. In other words, would she just be providing some nice background music, like Connie Tomena was asked to do all those years ago? And then I was performing, and I realized that people were, you know, clapping along and singing, and, you know, those who'd been asleep were waking up, and there was this really nice, you know, atmosphere, and it actually felt like a normal gig. I mean, it felt like a, a really fun gig. Um, and at the end of it, the director of the home comes up to me and he says, in the 10 years I've been here, I've never seen the group like that. This is the, you know, this is the best they've been. And it's just remarkable. After that trip, armed with the empirical evidence of her own performances, Beatty set out to gain a deeper understanding of what exactly was going on here. Would unfamiliar music result in the same sort of awakening that the familiar music had for Saxon Tomeno's patients? In typical BD fashion, she went all in. So I, I formed a team with a, a research company and a marketing director and care home group and a foundation and did a four-month-long research project going into care homes across the UK, performing a set of original songs live. Um, and then the residents who were in the rooms would li- listen to the music live and then also hear the songs recorded um, you know, in the weeks following. And we had amazing results. It was something like 72% improvement in memory, communication across that four-month period. Um, We had people, um, you know, singing along to these songs they'd never heard, who had not spoken in almost a year. You know, just absolutely mind-blowing transformations that, you know, really you kind of have to witness to then appreciate just the power of music. Encouraging results, to be sure. And Connie Tomeno says science continues to confirm the benefits of music therapy. The most exciting research that's showing us, at least showing us that speech recovery is possible through a music-based application, is at Gottfried Schlag's lab up at Harvard, at Beth Israel Deaconess. And he's a neuroscientist, he's also a neurologist, MD, PhD who's been looking at a technique called melodic intonation therapy. It's a very um, basic form of tapping and uh, two-tone type intervention. It seems that when somebody has a stroke in a particular area, in Broca's area on the left, they have problems with word retrieval. But the melody and the ability to use words and songs are still intact. He's done functional imaging of the brain, showing where there's a big gap, I mean literally a big lesion in the left side of the brain, where after 10 months or so many months or so of this intensive melodic intonation therapy, the right side of the brain, the fibers in something called the arcuate fasciculus, have become more dense. So showing that this kind of therapeutic intervention not only has changed the brain, but has actually created now a compensatory area that takes on the role of speech. 
To Bell's Marcus Weldon, studies like these emphasize the primacy of audio. By trying to help them, we learn something, and we learn something about ourselves, and that in some ways that connects us more readily to people we, we feel lost and outside our existence. In fact, we discover and will discover that the way they exist is just different and not necessarily as multisensory as us, but maybe it's not bad, meaning as long as they can get satisfaction in a certain way, maybe that is auditory or, or musical, that that part of our brain is still very satisfying and maybe, in fact, the most satisfying part of our brain. But also if we discover something about ourselves so we could feel more satisfied in the process, I suspect there's something really powerful there, that there is a neurological pattern or reaction to music and sound that is more powerful than the video, the touch, the taste, the smell. Obviously, in combination, there's probably a super effect, but is the core effect audio processing. Their ongoing work with BD may even provide a way forward for the next generation of networks. We are, as a result of having started the collaboration with her, we've become interested in a bunch of things that relate. Could we work on how to direct sound to you in a, in a space so you get personalized sound? Or you get sound that as you move around directs you in some way. So again, the idea of the network is, can I guide you in, a, in the way you need to be guided? That sixth sense idea. So if we can form sound beams to you, which we can do, and have you experience exactly what you need to experience as you move around, then maybe you can have a little assistant whispering in your ear what it is you need to know. You don't need headphones. You don't need a smartphone even, because the room will talk to you. So it's similar to what BT's doing, where she's doing a broadcast to them, but maybe if she, the music could be tuned for each individual, that there was part of her music that resonated differently with different individuals. She plays, but the sound each person hears is optimized for their needs. That would be sort of the psychological equivalent for those people. When I grow up, know that I'll make my own mistakes. And if I slip up, please be the rock that doesn't shake. Beattie and Bell's HDO will be hitting the road together in 2017, and she'll no doubt be playing this song, Need Somebody, which she wrote and recorded in the wake of her care home tour and research project. Learn more about Beattie, her music, and her various innovation projects at Beattie Wolf, B-E-A-T-I-E-W-O-L-F-E dot com. Whether created in an echoless room in the suburbs of New Jersey or in front of a newly energized audience of people once considered unreachable, music and sound will surely continue to inspire and guide us. So, quite literally, stay tuned. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. BD's interview and additional audio production was done by our friends at Bang in New York City. Thank you.